All right, good morning. Thanks for coming back or for coming. Uh, we're, uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and get started with a word of prayer. God, thanks for your kindness to us. I thank you for the way that you show us in a ways that we can clearly see and God, in the ways that we can't see. We know you're working in our lives. And so God, we ask that you would work in us, encourage us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so what we, what we are doing is working our way through a series of weeks on helping both yourself understand as well as per, uh, the potential of helping others understand how to work with fear, anxiety, and depression. And so last week, uh, we began laying a foundation. So we looked at Isaiah 43, where God says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And so what we saw there are that, that difficult times come to everyone. So that's not an option. They come at different times and in different ways, but they come to everyone. But the second thing that we see there is that God will be with you when the tough times come. So we have those kind of twin things. One is the, the fire, the water, it's going to come, but God will be with us uh, when that time comes. The second thing we're going to be working our way through, and it's really where we're going to be spending the bulk of our time today, is on defining fear, anxiety, and depression. In the coming weeks, we'll diagnose it, how do we treat it, and then hopefully at the end, um, answer your questions. Again, as we work through this, if you have questions that you want to write down um, and let me know along the way, that'd be great in terms of kind of knowing what you want to talk about in our final session together. Uh, you can email them as well. As we talk about defining uh, our terms here, fear, anxiety, and depression, I was uh, reading just this weekend about the Sloan Conference. Anyone heard of the Sloan Conference? Uh, it's kind of, it's a conference for geeks, but for sports geeks. So it's, I think they've had 13 of them uh, at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and it's a conference basically that looks at the use of analytics in sports. So things that we've used for a long time in finance is financial analytics to take into the world of sports, and the Sloan Conference is a look at that. Well, at this conference, uh, a, a well-known sports columnist, uh, sometimes called the sports guy, Bill Simmons, interviewed the commissioner of the NBA, Adam Silver. And there, I read this and I just thought how remarkable this is. For NBA commissioner Adam Silver, supporting players and their mental health is an ongoing initiative. He says, when I meet with them, what surprises me is that they are truly unhappy. A lot of these young men are generally unhappy. In his observations and meetings with players, Silver said he's discovered that there are pervasive feelings of loneliness and melancholy across the league. If you're around a team in this day and age, there are always headphones on. The players are isolated and they have their heads down. And then he, in his conversation with Bill Simmons, was remembering a conversation he had with a superstar in the league. So someone whose name everyone would know, he didn't say who it was, but he was talking with him on the second game of a back-to-back, -back, and that's like when you play one game and then you play a game the very next day. Silver said the player's unhappiness and isolation were to the point where it's almost pathology. From the time I get on the plane to when I show up in the arena for the game, this player says, I won't see a single person. And then Silver said, there was a deep sadness around him. Sadness and anxiety come to all of us. They hit all of us in different times, at different times, or in different ways. So today what we're going to try to do is kind of understand a series of terms and how, how they are used or how we can use them. And also, hopefully, at the same time, understand where we are on this spectrum of fear, anxiety, and depression, and at some level be able to 
uh, to work through that. And so as we sit here this morning, there is a spectrum that we all find ourselves in. Now, you might not be actively, you know, in terms of like your, your pre-fear, you know, you're, you're doing okay. But at some level, we're all on a spectrum of emotion or a mental, emotional, spiritual health this morning. And so as we talk about fear, anxiety, and depression, it's possible, in fact, it's likely that some of us are kind of on an end of the spectrum that you might call clinical depression. Uh, you've been diagnosed and at some level are being treated for that. Maybe you haven't been diagnosed, but you suspect that you should be diagnosed and treated for that. Others of us are kind of on the other end of the spectrum where we might have uh, momentary flickers of fear, uh, maybe about life, money, kids, home, whatever. But, and so those things come, and so at some level we all uh, battle just kind of at the beginning of that. And so you might find yourself at that end of the spectrum where you, where you know those kind of flashes of anxiety or flashes of worry or flashes of fear, but you don't experience or don't, haven't experienced um, feelings of deep depression. And so as we try to understand these, we're going to also try to define them for the sake of clarity. And so the first thing we're going to look at is kind of the most basic general category. And this is something that everyone struggles with at some level. It's just, it's inevitable. And fear is the rational or emotional response to stimuli that can produce a sense of apprehension in us. Uh, so not this week, but a couple of weeks recently, our family has gone to Caw uh, Caw County Park, um, just down at 17. You can see tons of wildlife out there. Both the, uh, the highlight of being there and potentially the uh, most anxiety-inducing part of being there is, is coming across an alligator. And so a couple of weeks ago, we saw 17 alligators uh, while we were there. They were just, they were out sunning themselves. It was the temperature, apparently. It was ideal for them. But that, they were all far enough away that they didn't um, induce anxiety. However, as we were walking along, uh, we were walking, right when we first got there, we'd go along, and we, we didn't see it. I, uh, my, my uh, two kids and I had crossed, and then my daughter, Claire Jane, was behind us, and then I heard Liz scream, and she had almost stepped on a copperhead, kind of burrowed down there in the sand. Well, fear is a rational response in that moment. So it's not always that, that fear is, you know, is, is a symptom of something wrong with us. Sometimes it's, it's actually a demonstration that there's something right with us. And so in that moment, the snake kind of recoiled. And so for Liz, and then when I turned, honestly, I mean, it took me a little while to get my, uh, my heartbeat down. And, you know, we're kind of walking along because she's, and we're also like, okay, no more flip-flops next time. Um, but walking along in flip-flops, and, you know, and there's a snake kind of burrowed into the sand that she almost stepped on. So fear can be rational, at the same time, we can have irrational fears. So things that are a response to things in life that may be far removed from reality. Uh, in fact, sometimes it's said that the key to sanity is living in ignorance of your fears. Like if you, if you lived in light of everything that could possibly go wrong, you know, you're turning out of church this morning and you fear, you know, every car could be a collision. At some level, sanity requires that we live in ignorance of, the, of all of the numbers of things that could go wrong in our lives and trust that God will take care of them. But fear is an unpleasant feeling, emotional or mental response due to our sense that something is a danger or something could go wrong or that something will be painful. So there's this idea of a threat and there is a, a response of fear. Now again, in this, you can have a rational fear and you can have an irrational fear. So then anxiety is kind of moving beyond this. It's the prolonged feeling of fear. 
So, so fear might be the moment of seeing the snake in the path, and anxiety would be the feeling that you have hoping there are no more snakes as you walk. It's kind of the, the prolonged experience of fear. Uh, we often call this, and God's Word calls this, worry. And so it's sort of a, a preoccupying fear. Now, it might not be paralyzing. It not, might not uh, control us. It might not be at the point where uh, it's, it's uh, totally debilitating, but it's something that, that continues it's, it's an experience with fear that is kind of like walking through life with it. Uh, it can be a sense of uneasiness about events that we can't control or events that we cannot predict. Uh, it might manifest itself in your life as nervousness. Maybe uh, you sense this socially sometimes. You're, you're nervous in certain settings or, uh, or in other, other ways. So anxiety is something that, again, at some level we all experience to some degree. It might just be, you know, kind of something, a worry chewing at the back of your mind. But it can also grow into a full-blown diagnosable condition of anxiety. So there's fear, there's anxiety, but there's something that can be diagnosed, and if it gets to that point, we call it generalized anxiety disorder. Generalized anxiety disorder. And this is excessive ongoing anxiety and worry that interfere with day-to-day activities. And this could be a sign of a general anxiety generalized anxiety disorder. So that's the idea that it's something that is continuous in your life and it's grown to the point where it's what we would call excessive. In other words, rather than um, your dependence on God or some level of uh, logical or emotional connection to life, the anxiety begins to be what controls you. And so the biggest reality in your life is, is not uh, that God is with you in the flames, it's the flames, it's what's around you and this leads to anxiety. So you've kind of got this so fear, anxiety, and then to move one step beyond this, we have depression. And depression is the extended experience of sadness or emotional darkness. So it's sort of an emotional or mental response to fear and anxiety. So fear is kind of the very front end of this. And that can be a blip or it can be something that you know, is, is a larger fear, uh, all the way to depression, which is this mental, emotional, psychological, spiritual response, which is darkness as a result of the fear or anxiety. It can range from very brief thoughts, very brief bouts with darkness, or to incessant depression, even severe depression, where you find yourself completely uh, spiritually, emotionally debilitated, perhaps even physically debilitated, unable to get out of bed, unable to move, unable to cope with life. Uh, Clinical depression is the most severe or the more severe form of depression. It's also known as major depression or major depressive disorder. And so this this is a condition. It's not necessarily depression caused by a loss. So you can have uh, a a disorder, a, a feeling of depression that is clinically diagnosed. That's not necessarily the same as something that may feel the same, which is you're depressed at the loss of, of a death of a loved one or a medical condition. It can be caused uh, by something like a, a thyroid disorder. Uh, enzymes or hormones get out of balance, and, and those things can cause this same feeling. So uh, these next uh, series of things, these are, these are just things that would be used, used to diagnose whether you have clinical depression. So these are from uh, the Mayo Clinic. You can actually Google them. They're online. For, but for clinical depression, you must have five or more of these symptoms over a two-week period, most of the day, nearly every day. So at least five of these symptoms over a two-week period, 
most every day for most of the day. And at least one of the symptoms must either be a depressed mood or a loss of interest or pleasure. Are these signs and symptoms may include uh, the following. A depressed mood, such as you're just feeling sad, empty, or you're tearful. And if you're younger, that might just be constant irritability. And some of you are like, yeah, we call that adolescence. So I'm just saying uh, that, you know, if, 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 so if you've got one but not four more of these, you're doing okay. They're just teenagers. All right, or they may just, just may not have enough sleep or woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Also, a significantly reduced interest or feeling, no pleasure at all um, in most activities. So things that would ordinarily bring joy or pleasure in life, uh, they don't bring that to you. Significant weight loss when not dieting. Now, some people say, hey, that sounds good. That doesn't sound depressing. But if, if, it's, if it's not a, an intentional goal or a response to what would be kind of be normal choices, it can be a sign. It could be also in weight gain uh, or a decrease or increase in appetite. In uh, children, it could be a failure to grow or gain weight as expected. could be insomnia or an increased desire to sleep. So you see some of the things are opposites, weight loss, weight gain, can't sleep, or can't do anything but sleep. Uh, restlessness or slowed behavior that can be observed by others. So there's just kind of an agi- general agitation in you and other people comment on that, or uh, you're slow to respond. You're kind of not engaged in normal life uh, like, like, uh, like you typically would be. Uh, a fatigue or a loss of energy. So you find yourself unable to function kind of in life at a normal rate as you typically would. Feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt. So the idea that no matter what you do, it's no good. Or you feel levels of shame or guilt that you find yourself unable to deal with and unable to process and, and they are debilitating. You have trouble making decisions. Now some of you are like, yeah, I can't decide where to go to lunch. Trouble thinking or concentrating. Some of you are like, yeah, that's having a two-year-old. And so all these things that some of them can be caused by life, but you have a bunch of these, they're a sign that you could be clinically depressed. Obviously, at the most serious end of the spectrum, recurrent thoughts of death or suicide, or even possibly a suicide attempt or a diverted suicide attempt. So again, the point is to, to be diagnosed, you typically have to have five or more of these symptoms experienced almost every day constantly for a two-week period. Now, some of these, like we're all going to experience sometimes nervousness, agitation, hey, I can't sleep. Uh, but the point is to, get, to be clinically depressed, there must be a prolonged experience over a couple of weeks, at least, it may be much longer for some people, and experiencing many of these symptoms uh, constantly. And so before we, we go on, I just want to say this, that you know, some of you recognize this and you identify with it strongly because it's where you live. And I just want to say that if if you find yourself and you're kind of like self-diagnosing, it would be to go ahead and get help now. Uh, We're not in a position, obviously, like here individually this morning, probably to give every individual that help, but it would be to go ahead and reach out for help. Because one thing about depression is that depression loves being alone. Now, this doesn't mean that you love being alone or desire to be alone. It just means that it thrives. It's a condition that thrives when you're alone or when you believe that you are alone. What's worse than being helpless is being helpless and having no one to help. It's the feeling that you're drowning and you cannot come back out. 
So you find yourself kind of down at the end of a tunnel or maybe, you know, you're like drowning in a sea of emotion or experience and you cannot, you, you cannot help yourself. Well, in that moment, the best thing that you can do is the hardest thing, and that's to tell someone. Tell someone that you, that you need help. So getting help can look like talking to someone about your experience, talking to someone about your depression, uh, voicing that controlling fear. It can look like getting a professional help. But at the least, talk to someone about it. Now, that may feel like the hardest thing because if you're struggling with feelings of worthlessness and anxiety and fear, well, it's hard to talk about that. Because what you're experiencing is something that by definition kind of conflicts with being able to talk about it. It's this experience that debilitates you. So voice the controlling fear to someone. Find someone that you trust, find someone that you can be vulnerable with, and talk to them about it. And, and you, because you're experiencing this, you may not be able to, to know how to get the help that you need. And so this person may not be able to help you in the way that you need it, but maybe they can help you get the help. In other words, maybe they can help you clearly think through or take steps or see someone or sit down and talk with someone. Uh, I'll say certainly um, it would be my delight or us as a church, our delight to help anyone, whether we can uh, professionally or personally or pastorally help you where you are. We want to seek you, seek to get you the help uh, that you need. So if you find yourself here, get help. And, 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 and by that, in saying that, that doesn't mean that you're, you're a hopeless case. It just means that you're a person, and we all get to that point where we, we need help at some point. Uh, you know, the, uh, the Christian life is a community project. We don't, we don't need churches just because, you know, we got to get together every week and look good. We need one another, and, and we need to, to help one another, and sometimes that's when we feel helpless. All right, so uh, before we move on, I want to talk just a minute about some dangers in definitions. So there are two kind of two dangers on opposite ends of the spectrum as we work through this. Uh, one is the danger of over-diagnosing, as in we can over-diagnose and over-medicate every little problem uh, that someone experiences. Uh, so for instance, a couple of, couple of years ago, I uh, was coaching one of my girls on a soccer team, and there's this little kid named Harry. And uh, I observed Harry not just on my team, but on multiple other teams uh, over, over a period of a couple of years. And the dude, he was hard to deal with. He was the kind who would come up and he would just shove kids, like shove the whole line, you know, you're, you're, like people are waiting in line. Or he'd run through and he'd kick away every kid's ball. His parents dealt with this uh, by medicating him. And, and there are parts, of, I don't really know where he is. It may be necessary. There are also some parts of it that are like, that, that need to be taught and need to be, to be disciplined. And it's difficult in a culture where the, where the response is always medication, sometimes to know when it should be and when it shouldn't be. So sometimes um, something is labeled a disorder, and we kind of define it right out, of, um, right out of society. You know, we used to call it, you know, good old-fashioned horse sense, or, you know, uh, or, or taking them to school, or, or teaching them. And, and so sometimes we can um, over-diagnose, but we can also under-diagnose. And so sometimes we fail to properly think through the nuances of depression. So at some level, all bad things are caused by sin. In other words... Adam and Eve, a few thousand years ago, sinned, and in, and in sinning, breaking God's law, they introduced brokenness into creation. So in that sense, everything is caused by sin. But every feeling of depression doesn't mean that there's something sinful in you that's causing that. It's not necessarily caused by sinful thinking, feeling, or doing. 
And so sometimes we can overdiagnose, just say, well, give them a pill and not really deal with, with, with kind of the full level of experience and evaluation because honestly, that's easier. It's easier just to medicate it than actually uh, diagnose it and deal with it. Or sometimes we can underdiagnose and just say, oh, that's a you problem. You know, you got to get over that. And so we can kind of go to either end of the spectrum. Well, the irony of this is that overdiagnosing depression and underdiagnosing depression are rooted in the same problem, and that is we attempt to make something very simple that is actually complex. Humans are complex, and dealing with these problems can be complex. So the problem could be physiological or medical. You've had some change in your body, and, and it's not been traceable yet. We haven't been able to detect it yet, and so and so it could be caused physically. It could, could be caused uh, psychologically, and there's, there's something going on that we can't see. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's like, for instance, the way in history, if you go back to uh, the Revolutionary War, Civil War, even World War I, World War II, Vietnam War, the way we deal, dealt with PTSD and soldiers is very different than what we know is going on now. We know there are, re- like, they are not physical symptoms, as in necessarily, I mean, they could be as well, but they're not necessarily physical symptoms, but the experience of horror in war affects people in ways that you cannot see with your eye or, or diagnose with a stethoscope. And so the same thing is true in terms of disorders. Sometimes you can see it clearly, and sometimes you cannot see it clearly. And the difficulty about this is, is that diagnosing depression is a little bit like trying to untangle fishing line. You ever done that? Like, you get, the, you get this line that you can barely hold between your fingers, and it gets a knot in it. And often what's better to do is just, like, cut it off and start over, right? But the problem is, with, with people, we don't do that. They're, they're complex. They're messy. And it's, it's very difficult to, to unravel the knot. And you kind of pull one loop out, and then you're like, oh, we got a whole other set of issues here that we're working through. And so both underdiagnosing and overdiagnosing are, they're really a response to the, the difficulty of that. And uh, if, if, you've, uh, if you've been a parent or teacher, you know what it's like. Because there's sometimes when it's just like, nyah, 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 you're like, just make it go away. And so sometimes that's the way we deal, the way we deal with uh, people as well. And so it would be nice if, if people came in with their experience and they're kind of walking through this and they could say, well, first this happened and then I felt this. And in response to this, I did this. That ain't the way it works. They'll walk in and, you know, it's, it's like dealing with an, an emotional an emotional little kid, and they, they can't even describe, you know, like, I don't even know what happened. Like, whoa, 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 just, just calm down. What happened? And, you know, and sometimes that happens to us as adults, too, and we don't express it maybe in the same way that a child would. But we got similar things going on inside us, and it's difficult for us to articulate. We don't even know what's going on. We, we know something's wrong, but we can't say what it is, or we can't say what caused it. So that makes it very difficult uh, to diagnose. It's very complex. So what is depression. So Ed Welch, uh, and this is from his book, Depression, Looking Up from the Stubborn Darkness. Scott or someone asked me the name of it last week. I couldn't remember the subtitle, but this is the book. It says, depression is a form of suffering that can't be reduced to one universal cause. Now, what we'd like to be able to do is to do that. You say, okay, you're feeling depressed. Here's the problem. The difficulty is that we, we can't do that. Now, sometimes you know something caused it, but often we don't. This means, therefore, that family and friends can't rush in armed with the answer. Now, maybe if you've experienced, maybe you've experienced this. You've been in a situation where you know you need help, but some level you're reaching out, and people, people got the answer. And you're like, that ain't my problem, and that ain't the answer to this problem that you can't even articulate or understand. Instead, they must, be, they must postpone be, being willing 
they must be willing to postpone, swearing allegiance to a particular theory, and take time to know the depressed person and work together with him or her. What's hard about this? Time. It takes time. And sometimes the person is so far down the wormhole that it's really, really difficult to devote that much time. Uh, we had a, this, this isn't about depression, we had a, a, a number of families in our church in Illinois who were refugee families. Uh, one of those families bought a home with cash through various, um, from various sources and had never heard of insurance. Well, then there was uh, an electoral problem, the home burned to the ground. We have a, a single mom whose uh, husband was, who had, they're, they're an African family. They come from uh, Congo. Her husband had been required to stay because he had AIDS. So she's here and she has six kids. And the home is gone. They have nothing. And they're, they're in our church. So we're committed to helping them. Well, I want to tell you, one family with one big problem, it took our church and a whole lot more than our church. We had a number of churches come together and help them in area organizations but even then, it was incredibly time-consuming to help one family with one problem. And so you take people with, you know, like, look at your life, whether you work or don't work, your relationships, your friendships, your family, your commitments. It feels like you've got a lot going. You've got a lot of commitments, and sometimes it feels like you can't meet your commitments already. And you add to that someone with an overwhelming problem, and the time that requires maybe expertise that you don't have is very difficult to help someone in this situation. Uh, he goes on, what we do know is that depression is painful. And if you have never experienced it, it is hard to understand. And here we have another challenge. So it takes time to help. And if you've never experienced it, it's hard to understand. But beyond this, you've probably never experienced that person's precise symptoms or precise causes for their depression. So even if you can at some level relate with the feeling of darkness, you may not be able to help that person with their issue because it can be unique or complex for any of us. Like most forms of suffering, it feels private and isolating. So what it tends to do is it tends to cut us off from the relationships that we need uh, to help us. So to kind of summarize this, fear, anxiety, depression, they're nuanced. There's not like one size fits all. Oh, you wear size nine, you wear size 11. Like, it doesn't work like that. They're complicated forms of suffering. And they can manifest themselves in unpleasant feelings. And sometimes those feelings, experiences can mount to the point where they're, they're paralyzing, where we cannot function. So because this is true, because it's complex, we're going to kind of move beyond kind of technical definitions. It may be this or this or this to what depression feels like, because that can often be easier, simpler to talk through than defining it. And so, um, as I'll also say here, as we move through this series in the future, we're going to use some of the terms interchangeably. In other words, we're not going to say, we're, we're not always talking clinical depression, clinically and diagnosed anxiety. At some level, there's, uh, there's you know, if there's a, a Venn diagram, they kind of blend into one another at some level, depending on the experience even though each has specific uh, characteristics. So what does depression feel like? And so here I'm going to quote from a, a few books. Uh, the first couple are from novels. Uh, the first is from a novel called The Marriage Plot by Jeffrey Eudenides. This is a, a novel he wrote, kind of almost autobiographical, about the experience of three friends in college. 
and then it follows kind of their life post, uh, post-graduation. And this character, Leonard, in this story says, one thing I learned between addiction and depression, depression a lot worse. Depression ain't something you just get off of. You can't get clean from depression. Depression, it'd be like a bruise that never goes away, a bruise in your mind. You just got to be careful not to touch where it hurts. It'd always be there, though. So it'd be like, I don't know, you fall and you land on your elbow or your knee and you touch that and you press that and it brings pain. Like in ordinary time of life, if you press on that part of your body, it, it doesn't bring pain. But when you have that bruise, someone puts, puts the finger of relationship or certain words, or it could be music, smell, anything, and it, and it, it presses right in on that, that bruise and it brings pain. It's hard to even articulate to someone how that could be because it's just an ordinary experience. Uh, another, oh, I, I guess, what was that two words? All right, here we go. Um, another, no matter what I do, it gets worse and worse. So this is from a novel by David Foster Wallace. It's there more and more. This filter drops down, and the feeling makes the fear of the feeling way worse. So you got the feeling, and then you got the fear that you can't get rid of the feeling. And then there's this just cycle, and you're just spiraling downward. And after a couple of weeks, it's there all the time, the feeling, and I'm totally inside it. So you're not interacting with the people or experiences around you because all you can sense is this feeling. I'm totally inside it, I'm in it, and everything has to pass through it to get in. So this is the grid now through which you experience all of life. I don't want to smoke pot. By the way, I'm not recommending these things. Again, these are from uh, from other sources. I don't want to smoke pot. I don't want to go to work, go out, or read, watch TV, or go out or stay in. Or either do anything or not do anything. I don't want anything except for the feeling to go away, but it doesn't. So what Kate, this character, is describing here is the, la- like the only thing you want is for this feeling to go away, but it's all you can feel. And you're trapped, in, trapped inside it. It doesn't. Part of the feeling is being like willing to do anything to make it go away. Understand that anything. Do you understand? It's not wanting to hurt myself. It's wanting to not hurt. So when someone struggles with self-harm, or suicide, or thoughts of suicide, there's a part of you know, a rational person that looks at this and says, like, how could you do that? How could you harm yourself that way? That's a response to this bruise, this inner bruise, this feeling, and trying to make it go away. It's not wanting to hurt myself. It's wanting to not hurt. Uh, now we'll go to uh, a Christian source, Charles Spurgeon. And so Spurgeon says, causeless depression cannot be reasoned with, nor can David's harp charm it away by sweet discoursing. So he's referring there to the period in Saul's life where David came and played and it made Saul feel better. As well fight with the mist as with this shapeless, undefinable, yet all-beclouding hopelessness. The iron bolt which so mysteriously fastens the door of hope and holds our spirits in gloomy prison, needs a heavenly hand to push it back. I mean, note that first phrase, causeless depression cannot be reasoned with. 
what's the hard thing about that? Because sometimes you can't even sense the cause. It's something you're experiencing, something inside you, and you, there doesn't appear to be an apparent cause. So your husband, your wife dies, and at some level you can assign a cause. There are other times where you can't even understand what the cause is. It's just a feeling, and you can't make it uh, go away. So we'll talk more in coming weeks about the feelings of depression, but we're going to take a little bit of time now and try to place depression and anxiety within a biblical framework. So we've talked about kind of uh, uh, definitions. We've talked about the feeling or what the experience of it is like. Well, how is it that we place depression within a, a, a worldview that reflects what God tells us? Depression is a form of suffering. That's why we started out by looking at Isaiah 43. When you pass through the water, when you pass through the fire, the Bible doesn't say a lot about depression specifically because they weren't necessarily working off of our technical definitions. But there are many examples of depression in Scripture. Can anyone think of an example of depression that we have in the Bible? Saul. I mean, we, it's one I just mentioned, right? So King Saul. Now, I mean, the, the books of First uh, and Second Samuel don't identify Saul as being depressed, but you look at that and he's experiencing feelings of depression. And at some level, music was helpful to him in that experience. What's that? Elijah, absolutely, Elijah. In the wilderness, he looks around, he's like, God, where are you? God, there's no one else. And meanwhile, God tells him, oh yeah, I've got all these other prophets, but you're depressed, you're, 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 you're feeling your symptoms, you're feeling your uh, emotions. Uh, Clayton. You guys are going down my list here. You guys are good. Um, yeah, Jonah. So Jonah, um, it's like Jonah's a preacher of the gospel. He's supposed to go to the city, call them to repent. He preaches. They all repent. God brings revival, and he's depressed. All right? It's because he wanted something else, right? He wanted God to judge us. He hated those people. He wanted God to judge those people. Uh, who else? David? In the will- What's that? Job, and he's got a bunch of friends giving him bad advice. David, David depressed, hiding in a cave. He wrote Psalms of lament. God, where are you? I mean, this, the words that Jesus says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are Psalms. That's from the Psalms, think Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Judas, Jeremiah, Solomon. Like you go through, the list can get really, really long, really fast. Uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, so they're walking down the road. Jesus has just been crucified. Jesus appears to them and is talking to them, and they're so depressed that they don't even recognize him. And it's when they leave, they're like, oh, we were just talking to Jesus, uh, our, our master, the one we thought was dead. Mary is in the garden weeping after Jesus is dead. What's that? Hannah? Yeah, Hannah, because of uh, un- being unable to birth children. So there are many examples in Scripture. Paul Jesus, where we see them experiencing uh, depression. Jesus weeping in the garden. Paul arguing with Jesus in 2 Corinthians, or arguing with the Lord in 2 Corinthians 12. Would you remove this from me? And that's a passage we're going to look at uh, later. So God has a lot to say about suffering, the causes of the suffering, and he seems to, at some level, reveal to us a number of people who experiencing suffering in the form of uh, depression. And so, by looking at what Scripture says, we can also understand at some level how we can combat suffering, particularly in depression. All right, so depression is 
a form of suffering. What is a cause of suffering? Ultimately, it's sin. In other words, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they broke creation, and in breaking God's good creation, they broke the experience that everyone after them would, would have. So there's a brokenness in creation. It continues and grows to this day. It's why we look forward to Jesus coming back because he's going to fix it. He's going to, um, what he does in us, he makes us a new creation. He's going to do that for all creation. So there's this ultimate cause of suffering, and that is sin. However, the immediate cause of suffering is not that easy to diagnose. And that's what makes it difficult. Uh, so someone mentioned Job. I don't remember who it was, but Job's suffering, and his friends come, and, and they try to help him figure it out, and they're not good at figuring it out. Or it, it's, it's like the, the lame man that Jesus is dealing with, and, and people come to him, and they say, you know, who sinned this man, the blind man, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? So the, and at some, look, so ultimately, all the way back to the beginning, you can trace it way back to sin, but not in our lives individually. It's not necessarily caused by our sin. So the immediate cause of suffering isn't always sin. So if you trace it back to the beginning, to its ultimate cause, it's always the result of sin, but that may not be its cause in your life today. There are internal circumstances that cause suffering, depression, our emotions, our bodies, life trials, spiritual trials. There are external causes, a fallen world, satanic attack, other people, grief, loss. So how is it then that we should think about suffering? And here's the point. If we don't know God, we don't know how to frame life in a fallen world. In other words, God tells us why things are the way we are because we have this experience. We see, and at some level we sense, life should be different than it is. Life should be better than it is. But at, at, at the bottom line, it's not. Like, my experience isn't what I imagined that it should be. And what we're doing there is we're sensing something that's true, that life should be different. And so we kind of can only then conceive of life in a fatalistic or horrible way. In other words, no matter what we do, it won't make any difference because there's no good cause behind all of this. So if you remove God from it, all you have is hopelessness because there's nothing to give meaning to invest meaning in this experience. But if we know God, suffering is part of the means that God uses to make us more like Christ. Now, this may be something that, that is hard for us to imagine, that God could use something painful in a good way, in a way that, like, training your body can be painful, but it produces good conditioning in the end. But this is true spiritually as well. There's a purifying effect that suffering has on us. It makes us love this world less and love Jesus more. And so to help us think about this, we'll look here for a minute uh, at Romans chapter 8. Paul says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our what? In our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Now, he's not specifically talking about depression or suffering necessarily here. But the Spirit himself intercedes with us for groan, with groanings too deep for words. But it can certainly apply here, can't it? And he who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that, verse 28, 
for those who love God, all things work together for what? Good. Now, the difficulty with this is we got one definition, and it equals a certain set of results, and God may have a different set of results. And we look at this, and we're like, God, you missed it here. But God is doing many things in the world, and we can only see a small slice of those things. Look, I mean, he's doing many things in your life, and you can only see a small slice of those things. So, for instance, let's say you experience a, 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 difficult, a difficult life experience. So, uh, let's say you're, you, you have an angry father. This father relates to you in a way that is domineering, perhaps even abusive, over the top. Well, it could produce in you that kind of anger. Or it could also produce in you a different response, which is to motivate you to be a gentler, kinder, more loving parent. And so the pain that you experience actually produces the fruit of a wise, gentle, loving parent for your children. And then he kind of goes on, he defines this, that God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So the ultimate good here is that God is conforming us to the image of Christ. That's the good that he produces in us, is that he makes us more like Jesus. And in making us like Jesus, what could be better than that? But the difficulty is sometimes the things that form us, that shape us into this image, are incredibly painful. So you lose a loved one. That's not a pain anyone would choose unless they were crazy or sadistic. You lose a a job or a way of life. You're abandoned by a a dear relationship, maybe a a spouse, friend. You have a difficult rift in your, your family. These aren't circumstances that we would choose. And yet God can use these things to shape us into the image of Christ because what he does is he demonstrates to us what we see there in verse 26, that we're weak. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. And we'll see later when we look at 2 Corinthians 12, that's what Paul says. When, when we are weak, God demonstrates what? That he is strong. And we're walking through life all confident. We're all good. We don't pray a lot. We don't need God. And then God brings us to something and and we need him. It's why when you see something like Hurricane Hugo, Hurricane Katrina, World Trade Center, what do people instinctively do that they may not have ever done? They pray to someone, someone help. And at some level, God graciously demonstrates for us that we need him, that we need something bigger than ourselves, something beyond ourselves. And so at the end of this, there's this promise in verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. All right, uh, if, if you know anything about kind of the order of salvation, so you're, you're saved, you're sanctified, you're glorified. Is, is, uh, is glorification now or future? It's future. It's something that happens in the future. That's called you get to heaven. That's called being perfect, and you ain't that right now. So that's, that's somewhere in the future. You may think you are, but you ain't. So that, that's somewhere in the future, and that's coming, but it's not here yet. But what tense does he use here to talk about it in verse 30? Past. Why? Because it's as good as done. Because Christ began it, the way Paul says it in Philippians 2, he who began a good work in you 
will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. Now, the difficulty is we exist in kind of this in-between world where we know that's true, but we don't experience that yet. We know we're going to be perfect, but we're not perfect today. We know there's going to be no more pain, but there's pain today. We know there's going to be a day when there, there are no more tears, but there are tears, there's grief, there's hardship today. But the thing I love about this is when God says it, it is as good as done. If he justified you, he will glorify you to the point where God can say it's done already. You are glorified, even though that's not your experience today. And then kind of the experience in between salvation and future, either dying, going to heaven, or Jesus coming back, the experience in between is the process of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we're changed from one degree of glory to the next. It's just a, it's just a little change, but we're growing more and more like Jesus. And these experiences along life's way uh, help us and prepare us for that. All right, we'll go ahead and close there. Any questions? Answer them all. Good deal. All right, let me close this in our prayer. God, thank you for your word, and I thank you that you give us both uh, experience of people who share life in common with us, including our Savior Jesus. And God, I thank you that you give us hope in Christ. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray that you would encourage them. I pray that you would uh, give them strong faith in what you are doing. God, I pray for those here who are in a particular state of life where they need help. God, give them the courage just to reach out to one person and ask for that help, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for coming this morning.